If you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word with you this morning, then I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 27. Acts 27. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, you should be able to locate one under the seat or in front of you there. And it looks like this. Feel free to grab that. If you take this book and you turn to page 1,112, you'll be right where the text is. And I want to encourage you to keep your Bible open this morning. So we're going to, we're going to walk through this whole chapter we're going to do it verse by verse. So it might, you might find it helpful to follow along, keeping the Bible open uh, so you can keep your place. So I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I want you to open your Bible, have it in front of you, and follow along as we make our way through the text. As always, or almost always at least, we know that we need the Lord's help to acknowledge and receive his word. So let's ask for that. You have the words of life, God, and you have so graciously shared them with us. Help us to hear them today. Help us to take from your word what it is you want to reach our hearts. We pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. So here we are nearing our journey through the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, as we know, has been wrongfully accused in Jerusalem. He was um, threatened, and there was an assassination plot against him, so he was whisked away to Caesarea, where he could be safe. He was held in custody there, and has been in prison now for over two years, though no charges have really stuck against him. There was an opportunity when the government transitioned from a fellow named Felix to a fellow named Festus for Paul to go back to Jerusalem. In fact, that was the desire of the leaders in Jerusalem. They wanted to bring Paul back to Jerusalem for trial. But they didn't really want to try him. They wanted to kill him. And, so, and he understood that. He stood little chance of surviving going back to Jerusalem. And so as a Roman citizen, Paul appealed to Caesar. And that's kind of where we pick up here. Paul now has to make the journey to Rome in order to stand before Caesar and answer for the charges that have been brought against him. So Acts chapter 27, we'll start in verse 1 and make our way through. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. There's an interesting note here. First we see that the Roman centurion that was placed over Paul, Julius, treated him favorably. And Paul appears to have certain privileges that other prisoners did not have. In fact, verse 1 distinguishes him from the 
other prisoners. And maybe that is because Paul actually at this point is not a condemned man. Charges have been brought against him, but he has not been convicted of anything. He still needs to stand trial. Um, so he seems to have a little bit more leeway than some of the other captives that are on the ship. And when they pull into Sidon, Paul is granted a shore leave of sorts. He's given the opportunity to go and visit with some of his friends. An intriguing issue here, though, is that as near as we can tell when we study the scripture, Paul had never visited Sidon. So who are these friends? Maybe they are acquaintances of his traveling companions, that could be, but maybe not. I think the subtle point could be this. We know this and we enjoy this. Wherever a Christian finds fellow Christians, he finds friends. We have friends everywhere. We have friends around the world. And in fact, week to week here in this fellowship, we're uh, blessed to meet friends from different parts of, of the country uh, who have come to worship with us. So wherever we go, we have friends, which means when you push that a little bit, there's really no reason ever for a Christian to be lonely. Um, one writer put it this way. He said, lonely Christians are those who have confused strength with independence and self-reliance. Doing things for people makes friends Allowing them to do something for us as well forges lasting friendship. Paul went to these friends, the scripture tells us, to be cared for. We don't know exactly the nature of the care that he was to receive. Some suggest that he might have had a medical problem at the time that he needed to have addressed. But that actually doesn't seem likely because if you notice the plural language here at this point in the narrative, Luke is using plural language. Luke, the writer, and Luke, the physician, he's present on this journey. So see how many times in, in this text, we and us is referenced. It, it's, it's many times throughout. So Paul is traveling with a doctor friend, Luke, and another friend, Aristarchus. It's possible the care afforded then by the brethren at Sidon was spiritual in nature. He sought them out to receive prayer and encouragement. They may also have offered him some provisions, some practical help, for his trip. And also the fact that Paul hadn't visited the place previous to now might impress on him an inspiring truth that while he is in chains, the gospel is not. Jesus is building his church just the way that he said he would all over the world. And once again, we're back to the theme of this series this whole thing, the advancement of the gospel, the growth of the church, the word of God, the will of God is unstoppable. Verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So this was very likely, this new ship, they've gone um, from Caesarea to Sidon, and now they've got a new ship, very likely a freight ship used for transporting grain. And it was a big ship. If it was typical for that day, it would have been about the width of the sanctuary space here, and it would have been about twice as long. It was a big ship carrying grain from... Um, from Egypt 
eventually to make it to Rome. Rome is, at this point, Rome is the center of the earth. Rome is a massive population center. There's not enough food grown in Rome to take care of the Romans. So this grain ship is on its way. Paul and his companions then find passage on this Alexandrian grain ship. Verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty and off Nidus, and as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, all these names and locations probably don't mean much to us here on the coast of Maine, so uh, I did take the time to grab a map and there it is. You can kind of get an idea of what's going on. And I'm excited to say I have a laser pointer, <laughs> which I think in 15 plus years at United Baptist Church, I have never used a laser pointer. So Rocky used to use, Rocky used to use a laser pointer. Did I tell you what I wanted to do? I wanted, what I wanted to do was this is being recorded, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what, I, what I wanted to do was, out of Family Bible, was get about 15 people with laser pointers. So, so that when Rocky went to point, we all pointed at the same time. <laughs> it just mess him up really bad. But I didn't. That's respect. <laughs> Would have been funny, you agree. Cesarea up the side. And, now, typical, um, just just coasting along the coast here, trying to stay close to shore and out of the big seas, and up in the Lee of Crete, over here to uh, Myra off Nidus. The winds are bad, of course, so we come down again. I mean, that was Cyprus, sorry. Coming down to Crete, and where we just left off, we're in the little place called Fair Haven. So that's where we are. Next trip, next John, it was intended to be here to Phoenix, which was just another harbor on Crete where they would have been able to winter uh, because Fair Havens wasn't adequate for that. We'll see it in the text. And that's really when things got bad. And that, this is where we're going to spend our time today, right here, out here in the middle of nowhere, being blown all over the place. So there, hopefully that's a little bit helpful uh, for you. By verse 9, Paul and his travel companions are at Fair Havens near Lycia. It has taken them longer to get there than it should have been. You can pull that map down if you want to, Ben. Um, it has taken them longer. So here we are. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul the prisoner, remember Paul is a prisoner on this great big ship, in, interjects, and as, as had been his custom throughout, he interjects politely. Sirs, I perceive, I think. The counsel that he offers here is not inspired per se. This isn't Paul just making a prediction under the auspices or the, or the power of the Holy Spirit. It seems more to be based in his understanding of maritime travel. And his maritime travel, particularly at this time, of the year. Certain seasons are more prone to high winds and unfavorable conditions that make uh, high seas and make it difficult to navigate. And um, some in our fellowship actually know this, those of you who make a living 
on the sea understand this, that in our area, boats can stay tied up for days. If, if the wind is blowing, if the wind is wrong, the boats can stay tied up for days. And sometimes uh, people just pull the boats out altogether. They don't even bother to fish certain seasons, wait for the spring. It was similar there in the Mediterranean. The time for notoriously rough seas would have been late September through November, and then the conditions uh, remain difficult until uh, mid-February or mid-March. So this was a, long story short, this was just a tough time to be traveling by sea. Luke notes that their journey um, had taken them longer than was expected. Now they're beyond the fast, or that would be the Day of Atonement. So that would have been, that would have been late September, early October, depending on what year, I think, that this took place. Um, so what Paul shares here is what Paul knows to be true from his own experience. This is a dangerous time to be traveling. And I don't, I don't think that we should do it because if we get out on the big water, if we get out there, we could very well lose everything. We could lose the cargo and we certainly could lose our lives. Verse 11, but the centurions paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. The pilot and the owner probably did not have any knowledge of the depth of Paul's experience here because by this time, he has already survived three shipwrecks. He knows a thing or two about rough seas. Uh, but he was outvoted. They did, they, he was, he's, a, he's a captive. What does he know? The owner wants to get the grain delivered. The pilot says he can make the journey, so off they go. Verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. I read that. Uh, um, it's my privilege to read these things over and over again. And I got that little phrase. I got hung up uh, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure how you would feel about setting foot in making a commitment to a, a wooden boat on the ocean on the chance that somehow you might make it <laughs> where you were headed. It's almost like they threw up there, well, somehow we'll get there. Me, I'm not that I'm much of a risk taker. Although I will admit that it was not an ambitious plan that they had. All they really wanted to do was leave this place called Fair Havens, which is kind of ironic because turns out it's not that fair of a haven. For, for winter, and then just move up the coast a little bit to this place called Phoenix. It was just a better harbor to winter over in. And so, really, according to the scripture, on the chance that they could make it, they set out. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, doesn't that sound nice? That's, oh, that's marvelous. When the south wind blew gently, who doesn't love a gentle south wind? So when that happened, they thought, okay, our window is here. The, 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 the weather has shifted. And we, we can set sail. The window is open, and away they go. Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, now's our chance. They weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. The winds were light. Acts 27, 14, but soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from land. Now that's something we know about. <laughs> that's something we do know about. We know about Northeasters. There's actually a name for this Northeaster, okay? It's called the Euclidon. Yeah, it sounds like a dinosaur, doesn't it? Euroclodon, sorry, the Euroclodon, yes. 
you know that a storm is bad or a storm system is bad if it has its own name. And this one has its own name. And, and it is well known. It's supposedly the type of storm that blew the trees off of Malta. That's another story, and it's not in the, our text. But it was a massive northeaster. And, 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 and the winds came up, according to verse 14. Struck down from land, 15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Don't know if you've ever been out on the ocean and had something like that happen. It can blow up real quick and it can get big real quick. And sometimes you get out there and you find, my gracious, this water is bigger than the boat I have. And I'm not comfortable anymore. And at some point, you may decide the same thing. We can't fight this wind. We're going to have to turn and go with it. That's exactly what the crew decided to do. Sailing into um, wind, and in this case, massive waves, is torturous. There's just, it's just a pounding, pounding, pounding journey as the hull comes up and it smashes down uh, between the waves. Sometimes it's all you can do to just turn stern to and let the water take you wherever the water intends to take you. That's what they did. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. This is just one of these details that will come into play a little bit later in the story. We think of the ship's boat. We think of a lifeboat or a skiff or something like that that apparently had broken loose. And verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. All commentators, all scholars are massively impressed at this point with Luke's nautical knowledge. He is describing play-by-play play what is happening with the right terms and ways it would make sense to the hearers and to the readers and to the men on the sea. He is an amazing person, Luke. He's talking about something that we would call frapping. Falconer's Marine Dictionary. Yes, you're going to learn something today. What it is to frap a ship. I don't know why it's not called wrapping, but it's frapping. To frap a ship is to pass four or five turns of a large cable-laid rope around the hollow frame of a ship to support her in a great storm or otherwise when it is apprehended that she's not strong enough to resist the violent efforts of the sea. In a way, it's kind of a desperate move to tie the thing together and make sure it just doesn't blow apart. Uh, That's how bad it was. Then fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, like there's not enough to be concerned about. There's this thing called the Sirtis, or if you're reading from the King James Version, yours would say quicksands. And these are, the, these are amazing uh, piles of sand that the wind and the waves bring up in, in the ocean in different places and were known to be out there but couldn't really be charted because the winds and the waves change and so do the piles of sand. So not only do we have all this to contend with, we've got this great big sandbanks out here that we need to worry about going uh, aground on. So in order to uh, avoid that, it says they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along, which I think means just kind of drop the sails and try to slow the thing down. But in essence, the ship is unmanageable. The ship is out of human control. You may have noticed, I did in my preparation, that this story at this point seems to be flowing along very matter-of-factly. Luke is just giving us the facts, which is what Luke has always done throughout this. Um, it's, it's just happening just how he reports it, but if you could just for a second, just for a moment to get the feel of the passage, put yourself in the shoes of anyone on that boat. 
Any member, any passenger, whether you're a centurion, a soldier, a prisoner, a cook, it doesn't matter, put yourself there and see and begin to feel a little bit of that struggle with all these extreme measures that are being taken that are, that are unsuccessful. There is nothing's working. You're getting pounded around out on the ocean. It's terrifying. There's a real danger that you could perish out there at any moment. It's terrifying. Again, maybe you've been out there when something like that has happened. More, more, more likely, you've been in an airplane and encountered severe turbulence or been flying into a city where there was a great storm or a great wind. Did you ever notice how religious people get on that plane when, yeah, all of a sudden, this thing is quiet. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary when, when your life is really in danger, and that's what's happening. It, it is a very scary scene, even though Luke is just sort of giving us the facts. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. What are we going to do? We have to get rid of everything that's weighing down this ship. Flashback a little maybe to the book of Jonah. Remember that? A big storm comes up. And what does the crew do? It does the same thing. Begins to jettison the cargo. Why do we do that? We've got to make the ship lighter so that it will ride higher in the sea so there's less chance of it being overwhelmed by the waves. That's what's happening here. These crewmen with Paul are doing the same thing that the crewmen did in the days of Jonah. Verse 19, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. I don't know how else they would throw the ship's tackle overboard. <laughs> I'm sure they're not using their feet. But what I think Luke is trying to say is that's how desperate it was. Like, this is their, this is their trade. This is, this is how they ply their living. These are the tools that they need. And you know what? If it's not necessary right now, it's going over the side. With their own hands, they just started doing everything they could to lighten this thing up. There goes the gear. Don't worry about it right now. We're trying to live. If we live, we'll get some new gear. Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Everybody's resigned that this just cannot end well. No measure taken by anyone on that ship had proven successful. Nobody had the knowledge to pull it around. Nobody had the physical ability uh, to battle the storm successfully. The conditions are unruly. They are beyond control. And the situation is helpless. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, man, you should have listened to me. Oh, thank you, Paul. <laughs> yeah, I, you got you to gotta read that first, right? And say, are you serious? You're going to stand up now in the middle of this storm when everybody's at the lowest of low and say, I told you so. <laughs> I know some of you would do that, but that's wrong. That's not... And actually, that's not what's happening. If you really, if you read that, it's, it does read that way, but that's not what's happening. Um, man, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Like, okay, but it's not a jab because this is what Paul is doing. 
He's not, he's not so much saying, I told you so, you should have listened to me then, as much as he's making the case for why they should listen to him now. That's it. It's not, it's not haughty and proud. And, and it's not resentful. It's not angry. He's just making a case for you didn't listen to me then, but maybe you'll listen to me now because get this, the word he is about to deliver to them comes from an authority beyond him. And Paul is about to inject the important variable in this story, and that is God himself. He's going to bring a word of hope, and he's going to bring a word of encouragement, and it is not from man. It is from the Lord. Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the, of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. In this whole account from chapter 27, we have no record of Paul being outwardly evangelistic as he has been in some of the previous accounts that we have studied, where he's overtly evangelistic. But, but we do have this occasion now where Paul takes the opportunity to speak about the God to whom he belongs and the God that he worships. This God, by the way, sent an angel with a message from him. Now, this isn't in the text, and I doubt it was ever said, and it may not have been insinuated, but I read that, and I think of the Apostle Paul saying, any of you heard from any of your gods lately? <laughs> God is good, and God shows up with an angel. Anybody else have any advice? No. Why? Because their gods can't speak. Because they're false gods. They have no life in them. And they have no power. But Paul is making the case that I serve the living God, the one and only God, and he has a word for us. Paul belongs to God, and Paul worships God. And Paul worships God in the figurative and in the literal storms of life. We're watching it. We're seeing it right here. He's not jettisoning his faith. He's not throwing it over the gunnels because things are going bad. Paul is intent on worshiping God in whatever condition he finds himself in, whether it's favorable to him or not, does not matter. He's going to call attention to the goodness of God. He's going to worship him. Now, it is easier, I think you will agree with this, or maybe it's just safe to say that we are more prone to worship God when life is sunshine and smooth sailing. Would you agree with that? More, more prone to worship God when life is sunshine and smooth sailing than when it is darkness and rough seas. Which means, if we're honest about it, and we should be, because God loves us, we can be. We can be kind of fickle in our worship of God. We can make our worship of God contingent upon our circumstances. If he pleases me, I will praise him. But if I am displeased, maybe I will cross my arms or be a little distant. We can be fickle, we humans, in our relationship. And we know this. God deserves better than that, doesn't he? Because he's always worthy. He's always worthy 
of our worship. I came across a song lately. It's an old song. It's, it's not a new song, but it's new to me. Uh, from Sovereign Grace Music. It, the title of it is, As Long As You Are Glorified. As Long As You Are Glorified. And, and it really speaks to me. Maybe it would speak to you. I'll just share a few of the lyrics. It's addressed to the Lord. Shall I take from your hand your blessings, yet not welcome any pain? Shall I thank you for days of sunshine, yet grumble in days of rain? Shall I love you in times of plenty, then leave you in days of drought? Shall I trust you when I reap a harvest, but when winter winds blow, then doubt? Oh, let your love, let your will be done in me. In your love I will abide. Oh, I long for nothing else as long as you are glorified. Certainly that is true of the Apostle Paul. And prayerfully, it, it can be true of us as well. That we can worship God in the good and in the bad. That we can worship God in the calm and in the storm. So think about this. It's been a couple of weeks now, two weeks in a violent storm, blown massively off course. No stars and no sun to even locate themselves or locate a position. Everyone on that great big boat is disoriented. They've been pounded around. Everyone is lost. Like literally, lost. no one knows where they are. But did you ever think of this? God knows. No orientation point. Dazed and truly confused. I don't know where I am. I'm lost. Okay. But you're not lost to God. His eyes are on you. He sees you. He knows where you are. Even if you don't know where you are. And Paul is confident in this. And this is the comfort of living as a blood-bought child of God, friend. His eye is on the sparrow, Jesus told us. His eye is on the sparrow. Be sure his eye is on you. You might be today tossed about in the ocean of life's tumult. You very well could be spun around by an unexpected, fierce gale that has hit your life. You can be nearly overwhelmed by a rogue wave that came at you from your blind side. You may not understand what is going on, but God does. Rest in this. We are meant to rest in this. We are meant to place our faith in God who is in control of everything, Christian. His eyes are on you. He knows where you are. Beyond knowing where you are, he knows where you're going. These guys didn't even, they didn't know where they were, nor did they know where they were going to end up. But guess what? God does. Paul's confident in that much. 
And he's encouraged by this supernatural encounter, the visit of an angel. So he shares the message, verse 24. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. I know you don't have faith. You can borrow a little bit of mine, Paul is saying. I mean, uh, theologically, we know that can't be done. But I think practically speaking, sometimes it gives you, it gives you hope to stand with someone who's filled with hope. And that's what Paul is saying. So he says, take heart, which literally means cheer up, which makes me smile because cheer up. Oh, again, really? But that's what he's asking you to do. Cheer up. Take heart. I think it's going to go exactly the way God said it's going to go. But he does add this, verse 26. We must run aground on some island. <laughs> it's some great news. And then, of course, don't forget this. And why does he put that in there? I think maybe to adjust the expectations a little bit. Because if you had just listened to him and believed him, and then you see as the story progresses, as you're getting ready to be saved, all of a sudden smash into a reef and like, oh, this was all foolishness. No, God has it in hand. We're going to run aground on some island. You're going to make it. This is what the message is. You're going to make it, but there is more that you'll have to endure. Verse 27, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. I love this. If you've been out on the ocean, you know something. The ocean sounds different nearer land than it does way out. So we don't know how they knew they were nearing land, but oftentimes the ocean sounds different. Sometimes you can actually hear the waves hitting the rocks. Sometimes you hear the calls of birds, and you know if the birds are there, then you're coming across some land. So they begin to take some soundings, right? Because they think, okay, we're getting near to land, and they don't want to run onto the rocks. So they take a sounding, and, and we've got 20 fathoms. We take another sounding, we've got 15 fathoms, verse 29. Uh, so they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. So let's just stop here if we can and wait for uh, something to, maybe the sun will come up, maybe we can get our, uh, uh, a sense or a sight of something in front of us. Verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, uh, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be safe. So basically what's happening now is a couple, some of the sailors are like, well, we're close enough to land, let's make a break for it. So we're going to commandeer this little boat. We're going to get in. We're going to take off. And that was noticed. And apparently, it seems that God's promise to save everyone on the ship presupposes that everyone stays on the ship. So consequently, though the sailors would like to have taken matters into their own hands, we see in verse 32, the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. That's, that in itself is an amazing step if you think about it. The captor's listening now to Paul the prisoner. You see that shift? All of a sudden, he has emerged as one whose voice they will listen to, and they, they will heed. By God's providence, Paul is emerging into the leader that they will need, not only for this journey, but for what's about to happen later in Malta and beyond. They're willing to take their cues from him. Nothing else has worked out. He's offering them a glimmer of hope. Cutting that boat away, if you think about it, cutting that boat away and pinning all their hope in Paul's words is either ridiculous and foolish or an incredible act of faith. And I believe it was the latter. 
As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. Today's the 14th day. He said that you've continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. It doesn't take us any imagination to think about getting to a place where you don't feel like eating, does it? Times of serious upset, times of sickness, times when we are threatened, times when we are overwhelmed by worry. Those sorts of things can dissolve our appetite. And we have said it. I'm sure you have said it. I know I have said it. I don't feel like eating. I have no interest. This has been going on for 14 days. Add on to that all the smashing around that these travelers have endured. Think about all the seasickness that was out there. Think about how the crew was just working tirelessly to save the ship all that time. It's understandable that they hadn't eaten, but here Paul takes, takes a little more command. He takes a little bit more of a caregiving role. The role of a father, really, or the role of a host. And what he says is, you might as well eat. You're not going to die. Get your appetite back. Back to cheer up. You might as well eat. You're not going to die. And when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all. He broke it and began to eat. What do you think of when you read those words? If you're familiar with your Bible, you, you, you are transported by those words. Let me read them again. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. This takes you right back to a few different places. It takes us back to Jesus feeding the 5,000 that we find in Luke. I think it's chapter 9. It takes us to Jesus with the disciples on the Emmaus Road. But more, mostly, it takes us to an upper room, and it takes us to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, taking bread and giving thanks and distributing that bread. Now, this does, I'm not saying not at all that, that this was some sort of communion service. But Daryl Bach, in his commentary, says, well, while it may not have been a sacred meal, it was a sacred moment. And it was a sacred moment because hope was being restored. It was a turning point. The situation is still dire, and yet Paul has helped them move their eyes from the storm to the Savior. From the storm to their saving. You see this? This is what Paul has done for them. So now you can have an appetite. That's what we should be doing that's, listen, that is really what we should be doing in worship, don't you think? Coming in here and moving our eyes from the storms of life and, and moving them up to the Savior of all. That's what we do in worship. That's what we do when we gather around that table and the body and the blood is there. In Jesus, we remember. Yes, we're experiencing a lot of storms, but we have a Savior. That's what we do when we get to the point even of being so desperate that we are longing for heaven. All we want to do is get out of here and get to heaven. There's nothing wrong with that. Because what are we doing? We're taking our eyes off the storm and we're putting them onto our Savior. That is just exactly what Paul is doing here. You guys should have your appetite back and eat. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. God is going to save you. And then look, look at the result. Verse, verse 36. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. And now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that 
tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. You understand what they've done now? We are committed to one course, and we are going to run this thing to the land. We are giving up our anchors and any ability to slow ourselves down anymore. We have thrown over the wheat. We have given up the cargo. We have nothing left. We're banking on this one tactic. It's a last-ditch maneuver. They throw up the sail. They point the bow for the beach. They gather up some speed. But striking a reef, they run the vessel to ground. If they hadn't been told that, they probably would have been hopeless at this point. But they have been told this. God graciously told them this. The bow struck and remained immovable. The stern was being broken up by the surf. Nowhere to go. The boat is being dismantled by the ocean. So the struggle continues. And this time it's more serious than ever because that bow is immobilized. Crashing waves beating on the stern. Something has to give way. And you know what it's going to be. It's going to be the wooden stern of the boat. So people are either going to have to bail off this boat into the ocean or the water's going to come in and it's going to sweep them all away. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. You remember the Philippian jailer who was ready to kill himself when he thought the prisoners were set free? And we, that, These guys are thinking if we lose these prisoners, we're going to be killed. So if we kill them, at least we won't be killed. But the centurion steps in and won't allow that to happen. This is God's providence and protection of Paul. Why? Because Paul hasn't finished his mission yet. God will providentially protect you too as, he, as you complete the mission that he's given to you. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was, listen, so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now, I know that took us a long time to get through, but heck, how many times we go through a whole chapter of the Bible? You're usually looking at two or, three, two or three verses. But look at that. 276 people survived. All of them were brought safe to shore. What's sure? <laughs> That's probably one of the first things they were thinking, right? Where are we? <laughs> well, we're going to find that out next week, <laughs> Lord willing, as we pick up in the 28th and final chapter of the book of Acts. Let's see what we can take away from this, friend. What are, what are we to take away from 44 verses of Acts 27? And yeah, the first lesson is don't, do not, under any circumstances, get on a boat with the Apostle Paul. <laughs> But the major point of the passage, of course, which should be the major takeaway of the message, is simple and profound. It's just an encouragement. Listen to this. God keeps his word. God keeps his word. You read Acts 27, and that's, that's what resonates. God keeps his word. If he makes a promise, he holds to it, right? So remember back, back in 23, where uh, Paul in Jerusalem was told by an angel that he's going to have to go and, 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 and make his way to testify in Rome. And then the, the angel comes to him again and says the same thing. He said, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. But beyond that, all that are with you, we've given to you. You won't lose any of them. Grant, God has granted all those who sail with you. So you can confidently tell them that they're going to be saved. God told Paul there would be no loss of life in the shipwreck. And despite all the odds, that is exactly what would happen. And what do you honestly think the odds are of that, of 276 people safely making it off of a grounded ship to shore? It was a miracle. And God is a God of miracles. And God is a God of deliverance. Do not forget that. He keeps his word. This is why we can believe in him. This is why we can trust him. This is why we ought to obey him in everything. Now, as we close, 
I want us to just take note of some of the many promises that God has made in his word. So I would ask you, if you might, by way of reflection and response, just close your eyes and, and listen as I share maybe just a few scriptures that I pray the Lord will use to, to uh, hearten you and encourage you today. Just a few promises. There are so many. I'm going to ask a question and I'm going to give a scripture. Are you worried that you're not up to the task before you? Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Are you anxious? Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Are you wondering what your next step in life should be? Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do you worry that you are not strong enough? 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Are you trying to make sense of disappointment or tragedy? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you wonder how you will pay for your sin? 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you fear there are some things you've done that are beyond forgiving? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you wonder if you can be saved? Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you wonder how to be saved? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you wonder who and how God is? Psalm 86, 5, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Are you concerned about whether or not you can endure the trials and the storms of this life? Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, beloved, cheer up, take heart. God keeps his promises. God keeps his word. God delivers. And so our final song, as Amy aptly said this morning, has written itself. If we talk about safe to shore, we have to sing this song.